0: this is erased i'm colette Bauer-Zinn. and this is lisa johnson two black moms bonded by bluntness tenacity and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support every thursday we're exploring where the intersections of education race and culture collide dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive despite being marginalized
1: Welcome to another episode of Erased. I'm your co-host, Lisa Johnson, and I'm sitting here with the lovely... Colette bowers in. And we are thrilled you decided to join us again this week. Um, how you doing,
0: Colette? I'm doing great, especially after our conversation with Dr. J last week.
1: I know, I could just listen to her. She's like melodic. She has an excellent TED Talk, by the way. We left it in the show notes. People have to check that out.
0: Yes, if you haven't seen it already, do yourself a favor. Go check out our last episode, check out the show notes, and click that link to check out Dr. J's TED Talk.
1: So I'm in this Racial Literacy Institute. I just came from a two-hour session. It's a series of sessions conducted by an organization which teaches methods and practices designed to deal with racially sensitive situations, and it's fascinating. I feel like I'm in therapy and I've just like released a lot of stuff. So we're going to talk about that today. Let's talk about it. Racial literacy. So I took a quick poll of some parents in PSV just to just to see if, I, if my hunch was correct to see if people really knew what it meant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And most people kind of assume it's about building your knowledge around race, right?
0: I'm not gonna lie. I actually had to do some research and prep for this episode as well, because I, I too thought I had a general understanding and wanted to know if it had been specifically named yes. In academia.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and the, the few people who did know are academics or mental health professionals, mm-hmm. but everyone else was <laughs> like, uh, well, I use it, but I'm not quite sure. And it's about so much more. It's a concept rooted in not only knowing about race, but intentionally preparing and working to protect yourself against racially charged situations
0: amen
1: and that intentionality and active piece of preparation and protection i think it's overlooked and it's crucial to building racial literacy
0: amen it's crucial as we started the conversation last week with dr j to start early in instilling the skills of racial literacy in
1: our kids early and often what have you what have you talked about with your kids I'm very straight
0: up with it with my kids. And I talk to them, their father, and I talk to them constantly about race in America, race inequities. And we assess their daily lives, really, from a racial lens often. And we talk about what we're seeing from people. And we talk about the real as to the why, because I refuse to raise children to continue carrying this burden that we have carried for so many years. I'm very clear with them that it is not about them as people and individuals and that they have every right to claim their life, their happiness, and what is theirs. Yeah.
1: We, we do a lot of talking about it, but it tends to be, I have these moments of something happening and I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I haven't even, I haven't even broached that yet. Right. I mean, my kids are a little bit younger than yours, but still there are pockets of me having moments of just waking up and being like, oh yeah, I got to do that. I, I assume- that they know a lot by just living with us, right? And I, I got to work on that.
0: And there's an agree. overwhelming amount out there that I feel like I need to navigate my children through and talk yes. to them about and give them history and background. Yes. But, but we're in it. We, we, we're very active with it and in it and straight
1: up with yeah. it because, like I said, I refuse. Yeah, we just had this whole conversation with my nine-year-old about the fact that Black History Month is a celebration of black history, which is also American history, right? Just the whole nuance of that. Amen. Which is such an interesting conversation from a nine-year-old's perspective.
0: And for our listeners, as we keep bringing our lives into the conversations, just to let you know, I have a fourteen-year-old boy and and recently turned eleven-year-old girl yeah. in our home. And I have, a, I
1: have a nine-year-old son and an eleven-year-old girl as well. It's a very interesting household. <laughs> in any case, today we have joining us Charles. Adams.
0: Yes, Charles Adams is the co-founder and managing partner of The Lion Story, a phenomenal nonprofit that provides training, assessment, and consulting for racial literacy. For over 20 years, Charles worked on behalf of children in schools and not for profits, and he's a former district school leader, also previous executive director for the Philadelphia region of Teach for America. Welcome, so he's welcome. what we consider an educational saint.
1: <laughs> <laughs> educated black man. Hi, Charles. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. How are you all doing? Great. Thank you for
1: joining Wonderful. us. Wonderful.
0: Welcome to Erased. I'm glad to
2: be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So we like to kick things off asking our guests, when was the last time you felt erased? Diminished, invisible because of hmm. your race, gender, what have you?
2: Yeah, That's a good question. I would say not. I haven't felt that way in the last couple of years since founding and running a Line Story because that work every day is affirming. But I'm feeling pretty seen and heard in the last couple of years for the work that I'm doing and the team that I'm with. And it's powerful to to run a not-for-profit that's rooted in 30 years of research, all done by a black man.
0: You don't have Uh, those personal moments where you're living your life as a black man and someone just steps on it and tries to erase you?
2: Oh, I got one, yeah, I I, I got one. That was quick. I got a few, yeah. I mean, I, I took it from a professional angle, but that's helpful. It was 2015, 16, and we lived outside of Philadelphia in Lehigh Valley. And you know, Pennsylvania is a purple state, and you go north and or west from Philadelphia, it, that's that's where the blue turns red. Um, and I was going like weekend morning to grab some stuff in the supermarket for like pancakes or waffles for the family. By the way, I heard who you all have in your homes. I have a 15 year old boy in a couple of weeks he'll be 15 I have a 10 year old girl so we're all the three of us in the same range in terms of parenting Uh, and I went to the supermarket and I grabbed some stuff and I come out and there's like a red pickup truck you know you cross to come out the grocery store you have to kind of of get to the parking lot Mm -hmm. it's always a lot of foot traffic and it just stopped I crossed in front of it it made a left in the lane where my car was red pickup truck with a huge Trump flag Mm -hmm. and um, I'm like looking at him kind of like a, with a stank face, like, mm. and um, he slows down and like, looks at me, like shakes his head and calls me a sand N-word. And I was just like, what? And then I kind of laughed because I was like, you're so, well, <laughs> ignorant racist that you can't even get your, like, <laughs> you can't even get the word right. Like, I, that's not my background. It was like a presumption. And it was just, it was, it was a tense moment because yeah, you know, who knows what happens with a pickup truck a huge flag in the back, but also I wanted to get home and see my family. Amen. But it was one of those moments. Where I was like, "Oh, you just look like you—you so upset at black folks and people of color. You really can't even categorize this correctly." Which I'm not surprised by, but in the moment, it was—it was a, it was a, a lot. Wow.
1: Yeah, you're at the grocery store. Wow. You're about to make pancakes. You're wow. not expecting that.
2: <laughs> I mean, everybody was doing the same thing, you know, and he—and that's I'm like, you're that mad that early in the morning, but yeah, that was tough.
1: Let's jump in.
0: What do you tell your own kids or what advice do you give parents who want to make sure that their kids are racially literate?
2: Yeah. So we talk to them all the time. My wife, Ebony and I, we talk to them all the time. Very clear about it, who they are. Um, I think everything from literature and movies, but just regular conversations. We joke about it. And when I say it, I mean anything involving race, be it something we see on TV or something we experience. Um, I've said, and I, I think a lot, and I talk to some of my friends about it, I think like dosage and timing is really important. You know, like I don't want every day to be a heavy, heavy day. And I don't want, we try to like pay attention and have our antenna up to talk to them about things that are relevant in their lives, yeah. specifically in schools. It's different with virtual learning here in Philadelphia. So some of those dynamics that we would usually respond to don't exist, but um Talk about it all the time, you know, and they know from the extended family and us like what our upbringing has been like. They know what the dangers are, what the concerns, what the beauty and opportunity is of being of being of being black. um, I think it's really
0: important to call out something that you named and that you deal with it with a lot of humor as well. We do in our family too. In in fact, quite often end up in hysterics, (laughs) joking to get through certain moments. And I think that to give permission and name that for folks is important.
2: Yeah. Cause you know, like I think that so many people default to struggle, right? Yes. And so much beauty. My wife, um, she's an editor and works later today and she'll have like D Nice's Instagram page on. And like my, now my daughter knows all of these songs that we grew up. With. <laughs> yeah,
0: <that's> great.
2: <laughs> and so, like she's just walking around singing like Dr. Love. And we're like, what? And, <laughs> hey, like, <laughs> But to your point, the beauty in that, right? Like is that's where you're from. That's that's what your grandparents, that's what your aunts, uncles like experienced. And so we do that quite a bit. We do it with art. We we see, you know, we'll sit down and we won't just watch a a movie. We watched soul and we had a whole conversation about it. I mean, I don't know if it was appropriate or not, but we watched Black AF together. Like they sat down once and we just started watching it and had all these conversations about family and whatnot. So we we talk about it quite a bit. And I think the other thing is that I also think it's akin to for parenting, like in a parent, it's akin to like telling your kid how to cross the street.
1: Correct, right? right. It's and
2: akin to like don't take candy from strangers.
0: Right,
1: like and all it's-
2: these things that that we tell tell our children. I don't know the last time if ever no one ever offered me candy as a as a kid, but people told me about it and told me what to do. And so right. I, we also it's also preparation, um, and it's also like safety
0: and but- solace. And you saying that you don't know if it's appropriate or not—that's something else to call out. Like it's appropriate. Because you find it appropriate. You know, conversations we have in our house, Lisa has in her house, outsiders looking in might have judgments on it, but who cares? As long as we find it appropriate, then those are the conversations we should be delving into and the media we should be exposing our children to.
1: Hey, Charles, you mentioned something that really resonated with me. You said dosage and timing. What is good dosage and timing, right? Because I think I'm struggling with that.
2: Well, I mean you wanna talk about the last four years, I think, you know, the time it could have been every day, all day, just in terms of how people of color, I would say, you know, everybody who wasn't, um, you know, a white man, we, we've been chatting, like we every day, we could have had a conversation, but we also, I also don't wanna overwhelm, you know, this beautiful 10 year old girl and 14 year old boy and have them be stressed and despondent uh, because of other people's actions and perceptions, right? So I think what we've done is if it's something serious, we, we talk about it. Philadelphia, uh, rightfully so, and I would say beautifully so, was pretty hot recently, you know, all over through the summer and through the pandemic. Um, the protests here locally were very large and invisible. And we we actually live right by, well, you will have some familiar, familiarity with Philadelphia. We live right by the parkway, by the art museum. Mm-hmm. So like things were happening right outside. So we're going to talk about it. And sometimes it's a sit down like this may not be comfortable. Let's tell you, you know, like why are they protest and let's talk about that. And sometimes, like we said, and we just laughed a couple minutes ago, you know, it's something beautiful about being black. It's something beautiful about your history. More often than not, it's that, but I think just paying attention to like how they respond. And are we like are we increasing stress that they may be experiencing? Mm-hmm. Or are we actually doing our part to help them heal from what they're what they're responding to or thinking about? And so that's how we we huddle up you know, as parents and as a couple and figure out what, what we should do. And sometimes they just bring it, you know, and you got to sit down and they'll ask, you know, they're beautiful like that, you know, kids in general. I think a bad day with kids is better than a good day with adults often. And they ask us some questions that just take you there and you, and you have to do it. But in terms of timing, I would say the earlier, the better. Yeah. As soon as they start talking, you know, they, they kids are incredibly insightful and they pick up on everything so if you don't talk about it i think we're doing them a disservice
1: amen amen so what can and should schools do to support and or augment (laughs) racial literacy
2: are you are either one of you educators i am so the 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 idea this this question makes me think about the idea of like fire drills and mandated reporters right so if if you're if you're in a school right you go through this fire drill you know the routine where where they should be in terms of safety and if you're a mandated reporter you have a responsibility to tell someone, a decision maker or someone in authority, if you believe a child is being harmed. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have similar responsibilities as educators around race, right? Like what is what is our response in a situation in a school if someone is racially threatened or disparaged? And, you know, and what's our response as an individual? What's our response as an institution? And I think schools, honestly, I think they have an opportunity and a burden. They have every day, they have an opportunity to correct or enlighten folks about the history in this country that so many people overlook and sidestep.
0: Would you name it a burden or an obligation? I think if they accept the obligation, it's not a burden. Amen.
2: (laughs) If they say, this is what we're gonna do, this is how we're gonna, the curriculum we're gonna use, this is how we're gonna engage with parents of all identities, this is how open we're gonna be as a school. I think it it could be both, but I I do think that it's an opportunity. And I I think they deserve some of the blame that they get. You know, in Philadelphia, it was, I think it was the late 60s students protested about having African-American studies, but having black history in the public school system here. It's the sixth largest city in the country. It's the poorest of the top 10 largest cities. When they when they did that protest, the police were, were attacking students. And then it took like 15 years, maybe more, I might be being generous in a moment to actually make that a requirement for public schools in Philadelphia, right? So like wow. there's an opportunity to, to, to get things right. Like that. the book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, there, that should be the textbook, right? And schools don't do that, and they just have these—I uh, think these habits—which actually recreate some of the pain that Black folks have experienced in America. And I don't—I don't think all schools take that opportunity. There are some that do it, but a lot of them don't. And I think that that's—that's that's worrisome as a parent. The educator in me knows it knows it's a, a challenge, but it's worrisome as a parent. You know, this year my daughter has a, has a, has a teacher who's on it. Um, Isn't it a big clear-
1: difference when you have that? <laughs>
2: He had, actually, he's familiar with our work. He went to Penn grad school and he and he talks about it. She'll come home with some tidbits. And, and she's almost, she's curious and proud now where her question's like, did y'all know? Did
1: <laughs> y'all know <about> this <laughs> Let me hey, tell you,
0: <laughs> my little one comes home with that too. In terms you know, of, of this work being a burden for schools, I think that a lot of what we are feeling as families of color in these schools is that it is indeed being perceived as a burden. What would you suggest as actions to take to shift the mindset of these educational institutions from burden to obligation and privilege, really? One, I think it's an opportunity,
2: right? Like, I think, I think it's an opportunity to spend some time and some energy, really, in terms of the culture of a school, welcoming all folks from different identities. I think in terms of the curriculum of a school, I think it's an opportunity to, to widen and broaden what young people get to learn you know, arts, humanities. I went to a private school in California and I remember the few books they had that were written by Black folks in a library that looked like a collegiate library, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's an opportunity. So I think in in that question, part of the burden is, I think people hear Black folks and people of color talking about representation and equity and curriculum and whatnot in schools. Mm -hmm. And I think they hear that we're saying it's just for us. Mm -hmm. When in reality, it's, it's, it's braided in the history of this country. Like this country would not exist but for indigenous folks and black folks and people of color. And so we're not asking like, oh, give us this slice of the curriculum or a one particular space on campus or this organization for our children. Like this actually benefits everybody.
0: And as our guest in the last episode said, it's preparing all of these kids for real life, navigating the real world.
1: Which is kind Mm -hmm. of the point of school, right? Amen. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So <laughs> that's the point of school, right? right?
1: Right. So given the events of the past year in, in our country, are the experiences and questions people bring to your racial literacy trainings changing? Ooh, good oh, question, Lisa. How so?
2: I think it's changed in two ways. One is that we're not ambulance chasers. So if someone's coming to us and they already have a problem and not necessarily that someone's been hurt, but something that they haven't corrected for a long time, we're often hesitant to engage with them, right? Because we don't want to be that organization that came in to try to fix something that, that should have been a part of and should have been embedded in their, in their organizational culture, their leadership. So, you know, that's, that's one thing that happens quite a bit. The other thing, which I think is more positive and is opportunity, I think for all folks in the diversity, equity, inclusion space, and definitely for Lion's story, has been that, you know, there's a culture right now, I think that's developing where people have like have the opportunity to go for it. So we've had a number of organizations who, black folks and people of color within the organization, have pointed out some inequities, right? Be it in, you know, who's in leadership and who's not, be it in in pay, be it in we work with some not for profits that they're focused on helping people in Philadelphia, which is a majority minority city, and they don't they can't say the word black. But that's in their mission, what? right? So I think sounds now like it's
0: schools. <laughs> sounds like schools
1: they, doesn't make sense, right?
0: They they can't say a whole lot of stuff, diversity, equity, and inclusion that have been in their missions as of late.
2: Exactly. So for us, that's a, that's become as an organization that's become a huge opportunity because the work that we really do. You know, racial literacy is the ability to read, recast, and resolve racially stressful encounters or narratives.
1: Okay, wait, wait, wait. So- say that again and say it slower.
2: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's, that's the Brooklyn in me. Yes. Um, it's the- <laughs> racial literacy is the ability to read, recast, and resolve racially stressful encounters or narratives. And so what's changed for us, I would say, in the last 12 to 18 months folks come to us and it's white people, it's people of color, it's Black people, and they come to us and they have the ability now because of this window of what's happening these, during these dual pandemics to just say what they need. And there's, they're being pressured by some stakeholders and those stakeholders could be current employees, they could be clients, they could be a committee that's developed in an organization, it could be the board, and they could say we really need help just having conversations with one another. And I find that that Is So necessary and people assume that folks do it in organizations, but they usually do it about the work. They don't necessarily do it about how people are feeling and what's the stress they're incurring and they're experiencing just just to be at work. So that's one thing that's changed. And the other thing is that we found that our work transitioned very well to the virtual space.
0: Uh, Um,
2: So so we're able to talk to people across time zones. Um, It doesn't cost a company any additional dollars to put, you know, 30 people in a room who are in different offices. when we used to actually be in spaces and conference rooms, you know, circling up and 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 doing our work that way. Or so that's an opportunity your for us. Right.
1: Hey. And I should connect the dots because I don't think I mentioned this. The racial literacy training institute that I'm in is yours. <laughs> it's part of your Correct. program at The Lion Story.
2: I think we'll be busy for a while. And and that feels good.
0: Let's get deep with it. Is anyone ever really racially literate if you're born in America?
2: our work is rooted in skill building.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's actually a skill. So we believe more in competency than character. And so many people say, I'm a good person. Like I would never do that. I'm not a racist. I'm, I'm a good person, but do you have the ability to recognize when these moments stress you out? And if they stress you out, that means that you're going to be in a situation where you're not going to make your best decision and you're not going to take care of yourself and those you're responsible for. So I think that's a tough question. It's a good question. Really good question. I think it's, um I think it's going to take a lot of time. Like, you know, I think of the 1619 Project, we're talking 400 years right. plus. Like this is, and, and people think that we're going to like be able to fix this up pretty quickly. This country is rooted in racism. It's built around racism. Because we say racial literacy, but are we actually looking like for like a racial fluency?
1: Ah, like, yes. Yeah.
2: Right? So like people are able to communicate about these issues in different situations and in different times um, to take care of themselves and those are, who they're responsible for, either personally or professionally.
1: Right. So uh, let's switch gears a bit. How do you think the internet, you said, you know, it's, you've adapted nicely to the virtual space, but how do you think the internet and social media are changing racial literacy? Is it helpful? Is it harmful?
2: Depending on your feed and where you get your information (laughs) from. (laughs)
0: That's a both end.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like I haven't read this book, but I've heard a lot about it, the algorithms of oppression, you know, like, so some people it's reproducing ignorance and racial stress, but I think for, for me, at least what, what I see and what I experience, I'm seeing a lot of love and joy, you know, in my Instagram feed. I'm not really on Facebook, um, even in like LinkedIn as well, just in the circles that, I, that I'm that in of people really celebrating who they are and the dimensions of their identity. And I think, you know, that's beautiful. I think, I mean, the one thing I think is problematic is there are a lot of folks who are like, I got the book list Right. right. I'm reading. Right. Like, I, I, I understand. I can, we could talk about it. The publishing success of White Fragility is that book, you know, Robin D'Angelo's book. Yep. There's something about that, that I don't know how I feel about it. You know, I, I feel.
0: I know how like, I feel about it and it's not good. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like I, I hear she's getting quite a bit of, quite a bit of change, you know, for every session that she does. Because that was
0: a lot of institutions go to, to address all that's going on currently to everybody gets a, gets a copy of White F- Fragility. And, and, and then here we go. I, and I think we got to move the needle on that.
2: Exactly. So I, I think I think that there's an opportunity with social media to get folks having conversations. How do we move the needle, so to speak? How do we continue pushing and, and making it more than just like I read the book and now I know how you all feel or I understand history. I think it's really important, but I think we actually have to have conversations and- Charles, know, so, some, so...
0: some people think that, that by arming our children to be prepared to deal with racially sensitive situations, that we're focused on the wrong piece and, and conceding any expectation for real change. What do you think about that? I mean, I
2: think it's I think we have to do it. Like, I, I think that is the change. I think actually preparing our, our children mm. to be prepared for it is the change. I think that, you know, I was raised and I know my mom's stories say, she still says it you know like her responsibility was to give me more opportunities than she had and my grandmother said would say something similar my great grandmother would you know and so I think that's our responsibility and I think we have to be very clear about what skills and tools our children and other and, and young people need to survive not only survive to thrive in this country yeah like I, I have no problems with saying that and with sharing that I, and I don't think we're setting them up but I think it's actually more of a setup if we if we sidestep the obvious.
0: I think you know, that that's the distinction that we were, were getting at a bit here is that a lot of people are teaching their kids to survive and leaving off that last piece of how to thrive. And that's where it for me goes amiss. It's a both and you got to teach them to survive yeah. and thrive.
2: Those are two of my favorite words, both yeah. in. Right, when I ran a school in DC, I used to tell the students, I want you to be able to get gas on the way home in the hood and I want you to be able to get to whatever floor it is in the office building for a meeting. Yeah. And I want you to be able to do both of those safely.
1: Yeah.
2: And they would be like, "You're crazy. What are you talking about?" I said, "Just think about it. I want you to be able to navigate different spaces yeah. and stay whole, and be who you are, yeah. and, and you know carry and out and what you system. are
0: there to carry out impeccably, because that's what exactly. we do."
1: So, one more question: How do you see your work intersecting with the most pressing racial issues of today, when for the first time in maybe 400 years, more people are considering? Racial literacy.
2: Yeah, I think our work is incredibly powerful. Um, one of our norms, and we say this with with clients and folks, are that emotion, emotions are your superpowers. Mm-hmm. And so often, the only emotion that people highlight when they're talking about race or interrogating race is, you know, is anger mm-hmm. or grief. But when when folks start telling stories, you know, and they realize that they love their grandparent but they're also upset with them about how they used to talk about a neighbor mm-hmm. or they realize how someone did, did things when they were growing up to take care of them. So then they'd have an opportunity to thrive. As you say, You know that to me is the most powerful part of the work is that we're rooted in storytelling. Everybody has a story. And one of our values for the organization is authorship is freedom. Yes. So having the opportunity to tell your story and, and loving your story with all of the warts, mm-hmm. And the, and the challenges, but recognizing like wholly like who we are and where we come from. And I think that's that's something that this country hasn't really reckoned with. We haven't sat down and had honest conversations across racial lines or not often, I should say. Um, and even in my family right now, I'm having conversations with my mother's side and my father's side um, trying to better understand my ancestry. Mm. And this is from someone who, you know, the music I listen to, the art that I love, the family I have, the work that I do is is, is always rooted in in race. My wife, you know, my wife jokes with me. She's like, you always want to have these blacky black conversations. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not like chill out, Charles, but she's more so like, like I get it. Yeah. But I'm spending a lot of time trying to like understand who I am based on those who came before me. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I don't, I think it's not a weight. I think it's been perceived as a weight and there's some tough times, but like I, I think it's an opportunity and I love being a parent and having, having a chance to talk to, to my children and, and hear from them and also talk to the elders of my family and get a better understanding of who I am. My mom is a black woman from Brooklyn, New York and my dad is a white man from Sharon, Connecticut. They met in Ithaca, New York. Um, and then by the time I was four, I was back in Brooklyn with my mom. And so it's like, this is what I do for a living but literally that's my exploration and understanding of race is very personal. And I and I identify as and and have only been seen in the world as a black man, Um, and that's a powerful dynamic when you know there's a whole other part of your family over here.
0: That's so fascinating. I think you should do some kind of um, work with kids uh, that are biracial. I got two of them as they try to navigate the space of being in my children's case black. We're
1: talking about that.
0: It's (laughs) that's awesome, and you're uniquely positioned and trained to be able to do it. Because I have you one know, child that came out of my womb with her fist raised, and I have another child that's contending with the why do I have to choose. <laughs> yeah, and I think that
2: that's the powerful part, the why do I have to choose part, because the only thing people would presume about me, if I was in New York and my hair was short, people might use, some people would speak Spanish and think I was Dominican. Mm-hmm. But nowhere else in my life has anyone ever walked up to me, one time in law school, in DC, and it was a white person, and they were like, which one of your parents is white? No one has ever done that. So my whole existence, my whole life is is as a black man. Yeah. Yet once I had my kids is what really happened. And I was like, well, if if their grandparents are alive and they all are, my wife and I are like, well, they're gonna they're gonna know all of them. And i my father and I worked out a lot of stuff, but I, I think I, I've never thought about explicitly intentionally working with other biracial yeah. bir- biracial children That'd be cool. um, because of that experience. So you just put something in my brain that I've yes. never considered doing.
0: I've
1: got two yes. participants for you, and then I mean, ready. there's so many families like both of yours. So. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And even if they are not genetically, I mean, you know, mine. Correct. Are, mine could pass, unfortunately. Just, you know, mixed race. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm only midway through the institute, and I it, it's just so powerful. I, I I can't I can't stress that enough. It's very intimate and real. And I feel like I mean I barely know these people. We break off into small groups. I barely know them. I feel like I'm gonna be tethered to them for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's
2: <laughs> like that. You made my day because that's we because that's something that actually we did not expect to happen translating to the virtual space.
1: Uh, oh yeah, right, I can understand be, why.
2: Been, right, you would have been in a room with eight to twelve in a circle. You know, a cup of coffee in your hand or yep. you know some water, and it's it, we are amazed how people have bonded and and connected. And I think it's really around the willingness to share their story and yes. share their racial story.
1: it is hugely emotional. it is even if it's not your story, you're hearing stuff and you can relate and it's just it's it's heavy and
0: I think so that, everyone is
2: vulnerable
1: yeah, yeah, I think that what you said
0: is very, very true. People are starting to engage in what hasn't happened as much as we needed it to in the past with these hard conversations where uh, the door is open to emotion, and that's what we're encouraging people to do now. Get in there, have the hard conversations, be uncomfortable, because only coming out of that discomfort can there be potential growth.
1: And it needs to happen for everyone. Absolutely. Not just black people, not just white, everyone. Everyone, everyone involved. I love what you said. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a race story. Everyone. everyone. If you're American, if you're born here, you got a race story, whether you know it or not. Th-
2: <laughs> what you just, yeah, I was gonna say that right there is the point. We said, if you know it or not, in America, if you don't have a race story, that in itself is a story. If you mm-hmm. if you can exist and your family could be here and never talk about race, yes. that's intentional. Yeah. Amen. That's in, You have to, that, someone had to make a decision like we're not gonna talk about it. And it's, what a it's, privilege it's, 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 that, that would be to not ever have to talk
0: about what rock are you living under?
1: <laughs> 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 right, right, right. Wow. Well, thank you for joining us today and helping us to better understand racial literacy.
2: Y'all are great.
1: Thank you, Charles. Very enlightening. <laughs> Thank you.
2: I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
1: We'll be back in a few weeks, but in the meantime, please remember to hit subscribe, rate, and review us, especially on Apple Podcasts. And of course, you can always learn more at Erased Podcast. Sorry, ErasedPodcast.com with a C or on IG or Facebook. I'm Lisa Myers Johnson. And I'm Colette Powers zinn giving
0: once again a big thanks to Charles Adams for joining us today.
1: See you next time.